This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. You know, when I was young, I definitely felt uh, in relationship with trees, I felt that they were living beings that I could emotionally feel them and they could feel me and that they cared about my existence and wanted me to thrive. And so when I was lonely or isolated, uh, I would go be with trees. This week, an early Valentine, as we speak with plant lover Melina Semple Watts, author of Tree. We'll be right back. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Melina Semple Watts is a watershed coordinator, plant lover, and author. In her book, Tree, Melina takes on the voice of a California live oak from the fall and germination of its acorn through its 250-year-or-so maturity. A labor of love over more than a decade, the book is in some ways a fictional take on increasing scientific research into how plants and other organisms communicate with one another over time and space in a far more than human mode and pace. A student of history, of comparative religion, and of life, Melina joins us in the studio today to share more. Welcome, Melina. It's such an honor to be here. I love listening to your show. Well, I am very happy to have you here and really excited to get into our conversation. You mentioned that you relocated to Chico, California. Tell us what you do here and what brought you to the area. Well, I was looking for work, and my background is uh, working in the environment. I was at the Resource Conservation District of the Santa Monica Mountains for over a decade. And during that time, I met this wonderful woman named Candy Manhart, who is the executive officer over at the Glen County Resource Conservation District. Mm. So when I heard she was shopping for staff, I thought, oh, she'd be fun to work for. So I called her up, and I talked to her on Friday, and I met the board on a Monday, and they hired me by Monday afternoon. And that's, you know, it was just fantastic. And, you know, Glen County is sort of the heartland of California. It's, it's an incredibly agricultural county. They grow walnuts and rice and cattle, and many families have been there four, five, or six generations. So the level of knowledge is not just the person standing in front of you, but it's their parents and their grandparents and all the way back. What I've experienced by working in this rural area is people are incredibly welcoming to me as someone from the city, which I hadn't anticipated, because they say, oh, you write grants? That sounds like fun. What can we do together? And they kind of welcome new energy. So I'm learning from them, and I'm happy to be there. Yeah. So you are working towards specific goals in your specific work. Describe what that looks like and and why then you and I would have come together over some of these topics. Right. Well, Glenn, in Glenn County, I got hired as their soil health coordinator. Okay. And, uh, you know, soil is living. 5% of the soil ideally is living. That, that number varies what percentage of it is. And how growers treat the soil results in how much carbon and life is in the soil, right? So there's things that, that people can do, like putting in cover crops or mulch 
mulch or compost that magnify the vitality of the soil and mm. keep soil in place so that it doesn't you know, get washed away in the rains. So as a soil health coordinator, I don't have to be an expert on, on soil. What I do is I bring people to uh, farms where people are doing these practices, and then right. other growers get a chance to see what's working. And I find that peer-to-peer communication is infinitely more effective than me attempting to say it in right. the first place. And I'll often do things like bring in a professor from California State University, Chico, to talk about their expertise in soil. So it's an education for me. I, I love it. Right. And it's a lovely illustration of some of the the best offerings in California in terms of integrated management of agricultural soil watershed issues trying to collaborate and overlap so that the whole environment is better. I I think especially big ag, especially our area of the world, which is characterized by quite a bit of big ag, uh, sometimes gets a very bad rap at not trying, at overwatering, at killing the soil, at not helping with habitat. And yet there are a lot of people on the ground trying to make those interconnections to improve that situation. At least that's what I've found being in connection in this community. Would you say that is accurate? Absolutely. And, you know, the people who have made uh, transformative practices like, you know, conserving water or soil health practices that are working for them are so willing and eager to share. And when they share their story, it so inspires people, other people, mm-hmm. to get off the stick and do it. So yep. one of the things that people talk about is using cover crops, in particular in orchards like nut orchards, right? And they use brassica, which is mustards and turnips and things like that. And one of the side, they, you know, they initially start growing the cover crops because, oh, it's, it's going to uh, keep more water in the soil or it's going to provide more, you know, um, carbon or living soil materials. But what they're finding is in the roots of these plants, which are, you know, give off an oil, right? Is it chases off the nematodes, which are really hard to kill with conventional methods. And so I have farmers kind of reporting back that they're getting zero nematode counts, which is like almost unbelievable. Like they're like, maybe we should search a second time, right? right. So when they have that kind of happy outcome, people who might have thought they didn't want to do it, they get real interested. Yeah. So it's 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 a super interesting place to be in. And having worked before in the Santa Monica Mountains, where I was really focused on the urban wildlife interface and and advocating for the use of native plants on uh, suburban and urban contexts, mm-hmm. uh, to be in a place where people are trying to maximize yield so that we can all eat is a totally different mindset. Mm-hmm. And so one of my earliest experiences with real ag, right, was I had these friends who um, they have this gorgeous uh, farmhouse that was uh, a family member built it in the 1840s and it was falling to pieces. And John and Tacey Curry, who are married, took it on and did a rehab on it. And uh, Tacey, like a lot of farming women, is really into canning. So she invited me and my kid to come and do tomato canning with all the farm ladies. And I'm standing on her father-in-law's 2,000 acres of tomatoes, which have already been harvested. And the way they do the harvesting, there's a lot of tomatoes that don't get pulled. And I'm in a furrow, and I'm like ankle deep in tomatoes. And I'm realizing the number of tomatoes per square inch that a professional farmer grows in tomatoes. Well, as someone who's always grown tomatoes in my urban farms, I'm like, hi, I'm not worthy, right? <laughs> so, so recognizing the enormous fecundity that is required by agriculture and their success in this is an important part of the story. Uh, certainly, there's things that we, we should need to think about in terms of, you know, pesticide use and, um, you know, runoff and, you know, soil ha- and habitat and things like that. 
But there's so much that is successful about our farming. So finding that balance of how do we make it more sustainable, but how do we show appreciation for these people who work 14, 18, 20-hour days? I'm not exaggerating. No. You know, um, in the harvest time, like, these guys are and women are superheroes. Yeah. Um, and we have food on our table today because of them. So, you know, I'm certainly doing what I can to advocate for sustainable uh, growing practices and to help get funding in for these things. But... Um, it's, it's pretty humbling, the amount of learning I'm doing. One of, one of the things I get a kick out of is listening to people talk about the, the different technologies they're using to yeah. maximize their growing. And it's pretty Star Trek science, honestly. I mean, they're like, oh, well, the satellite pictures of my, my field for my cattle from the last 10 years, if you look at what we did with the grazing, and you're like, are you serious? So it's exciting. It's really exciting. And I think it's really important because it is part of – the idea of opening your own mind and perspective and trying to understand any given situation from a multiplicity of potential perspectives. And I am, I just want to say, constantly in awe, to, to reiterate what you said, of how hard our farmers work and how many of them are trying to bridge solutions to better practices. And, as a sidebar to what you're saying that I think is yeah. really interesting that I didn't really understand until I was literally in the field, right, yeah. is so many farmers, farming is a side gig for them. And they're out there and they're a soil scientist or they're a lawyer or a school teacher or whatever. And that's their family's primary income. And oh, by the way, I'm running, you know, however many hundreds or thousands of acres. Yeah. And I've got staff and I'm, you know, making X amount per pound of food that I created. The, the margin profits are so small that they end up doing kind of a dual income to survive. Yep. So it's 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 super impressive. It is. But it does make the people I work with more gracious about the fact that I have a second job as a writer. Right. <laughs> They're like, oh, you have a, you're going on the radio today. We get it. We'll we see you it. on Monday. Okay, good. <laughs> so you came up, as you, you mentioned, from the Santa Monica Mountains. And for anyone who lives outside of California, that might be like, oh, she just moved in state. But the difference between the Santa Monica Mountains and interior northern California is almost sort of three normal states away from, from one another, especially in terms of culture and climate and microclimates, weather, everything. Um, talk about your earliest influences and where, where you were in Santa Monica, where you grew up, and what sort of grew you into being a plant person, Melina? Mm. Well, my mom was a plant person, and I'm sure you've had so many people sitting in this chair who start the conversation that way. We lived in California and then Virginia, and then when I was seven, we moved back to California. And at by that point, after two years in Virginia, very seminal ages where I was five and six and early seven, I had come to think of the sort of four seasons and snow and really lush summers and that was my concept of what normal was. And the Santa Monica Mountains is a um, what they call a Mediterranean ecosystem, which means it kind of has two or three seasons. And your spring is kind of in the winter when the rains are, right? And uh, in the summer, it gets super dry, like all golden, and it looks like three-fourths of it is dead. And then it comes back to life. So that first year when I was seven was very shocking and um kind of distressing because I'm like, oh, my God, what have we done? You know, it's, And uh, two things happened that really – a couple of things happened that really broke through for me to falling in love with this new place. The first is like night two, I heard coyotes howling. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, those had been something in Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I thought, wow, is, I thought this was L.A. Is this the Wild West? So I was sort of enchanted by the coyotes, right? 
And then I got introduced to my first uh, California Live Oaks, and that was sort of is the love of my life. And then we had rains, and everything turned bright green. And I realized you had this enormous on-off cycle of lush green and and desperately dry. And I kind of, it was like a shotgun wedding where you decide, if I'm stuck in this marriage, I'm going to love this guy. So I I really fell in love with it and, and became passionate about it. And your work before you moved here, describe that just a little bit, and, and then we'll move into... Well, I had a, I had a fun career transition. I'm, right. And I think that that's it's, why I asked. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's really important for anyone listening who's sort of down on the doldrums about your own life that enormous changes can happen to all of us at unexpected points in our life. Like, don't think because you're out of college and have a bad job that that's where you're going to be forever. Um, So I uh, started off in my 20s and managed to scramble my way into the film business, which was its own fun and and intensity and nightmare all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I ended up with a job that I found really a bad fit. And uh, in that job, I was sitting there in a cubicle in a you know, a tall skyscraper just feeling soul dead, right? And I had this epiphany that I wanted to write about this book about a tree. It was, and it was overwhelming. It was like the entire story popped in my head in instantly, like it, like it had already existed and was gifted to me. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And I was so overwhelmed and excited and delighted. And then I thought, but do I know enough about plants? So I started trying to educate myself. So I had become a docent with the Children's Nature Institute, which takes little kids who's age zero to seven and their parents on hikes. And they had a fantastic week-long training program where you had a professor of geology, a professor of botany, a professor of this come and talk at you. So that kind of expanded my vocabulary of plants. And once I learned like those first 20 to 50 native plants, I became immensely hungry to learn every other plant name that I could. And what I discovered is if you have a name for it, then it becomes real and you start to see its life cycle and its personality Mm -hmm. and where it fits into the bigger system. And it really expanded my desire to understand the whole ecosystem of the Santa Monica Mountains and every aspect of it that I possibly could. So then I um, started researching. I took a class at UCLA, a one-day class in Oaks. And the woman who was teaching at Rosie Daggett said, oh, come to the Resource Conservation District of Santa Monica Mountains and use our library because we've got all these books and all this stuff you say you're interested in. So I went up to this little beat-up trailer that, that you know, leaked in the rain. It just was so decrepit, but it was obviously full of life and science and interesting stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And on the door was a little sign that said they were hiring for a watershed coordinator. Ah. And they described all the things the person had to do, which is community facilitation and eliciting project lists and finding funding and getting projects going. And they said they wanted a scientist. But they talked about this community facilitation process. We had to work with stakeholders from all over the map, like in Malibu and Calabasas. And and I thought, they don't need a scientist. They need someone who can deal with difficult people. Mm -hmm. And I just worked for (laughs) Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy, who are the most brilliant people in Hollywood. And and I thought, I'm the man for this job. Right. So I interviewed. And uh, they were on the fence about hiring me. And they fortunately called my ex-boss, Peter Horton, who's an actor, director, who at the time had just come out of 30-something. And fortunately, the two older women I was interviewing both had huge crushes on Peter. <laughs> so bless his heart, he spent, he spent an hour on the phone with each of these ladies convincing them that they couldn't live without me. So I was able to go from Hollywood to environmental work that was totally di- data and science and policy-based overnight. I think you're exactly right. They didn't need a scientist. They needed a person who could put all these different people together and be a facilitator. And um, that, I think that speaks beautifully, one, to your personable nature and also how persistence and being generally smart and resourceful can get you where you want to go in in many circumstances. So 
And once you get that opportunity, just take a note from Hermione and do your homework, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it was awful how much I had to learn the first three months. The, fir- the, the first meeting I went to, there were so many acronyms that I gave up counting at 45. <laughs> and I was shaking in the car on the way home. And I said to myself, you studied four foreign languages. You can learn this. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> but it was pretty awful. Right. So I want to follow up on the thread where you're saying – that you're sitting in a cubicle, soul dead. You have already fallen in love with the climate that is California in in its most characteristic sense. This sometimes what feels like heartbreaking summer dormancy, but Mm. once you're in relationship with it, it feels natural. It feels right. And everybody conserves their energy and resources in the heat of summer and the dry of our long summer drought, uh, which is normal. Drought not being an anomaly, but a a part of our life. Mm. And you're in this cubicle, and you have this concept gifted to you, which marries your your brain, your obvious enthusiasm, and this love that you have created in relationship with this place. Keep going from there. Mm. What... You you end up at this trailer in order to do the research, in order to write the book. You also get a job. Tell us a little bit more about the concept that was gifted to you and how you went forward to write this book. The the book is titled Tree, and uh, I, I think it was a, a labor of love over several years. <laughs> yes. Take us from there. Well, first of all, I think uh, I had a series of kind of spiritual experiences with plants Mm -hmm. that uh, made me see the world differently than other people. And I felt when these happened to me that they were so incredibly different than anything anyone else had ever experienced that if I told anyone I was going to be isolated and treated like I was impossibly odd and I kept it almost entirely to myself. Um, I will share those with you now because what I experienced when I talked about these, when my first public experience at the LA Times Book Festival, I was shaking when I told, you know, is people in the audience said, oh, that's my story. Yeah. You know, when I was young, I definitely felt uh, in relationship with trees. I felt that they were living beings that I could emotionally feel them and they could feel me and that they cared about my existence and wanted me to thrive. And so when I was lonely or isolated, uh, I would go be with trees and and I would be loved. So I went to college my freshman year and keeping in mind I'd gone to this high school, Marlboro school, all-girls school, lots of smart, charming people, really happy time of my life. And I got to college and I kind of just didn't click with anybody. And so I'd gone from like this super, you know, people diverse, wonderful community to like nothing, right? So it's Friday night, everyone else has a date or a party or something. And I go back to my dorm and I'm like, solo. And I'm feeling really depressed, frankly, really suicidal, honestly, because I just couldn't picture where my life was going. And so I couldn't go back into my dorm room. I couldn't face that kind of solitude. So there was this very generic looking large expanse of grass in front of the quad, suburban green, you know, monoculture. And I lay down on it. And I watched the sunset and the stars come to come out. And while I was sitting there just kind of barely breathing, I felt this tiny pop of energy. I'll describe it as light. It wasn't light, but it felt like a pop of light right in front of me from one of the grass. And it felt like it was connecting to me. And I said in silently, like, hello, you know, and thank you. 
and then I didn't feel as alone. And then the grass said to the next grass, for, again, there's no words here, but it felt like the grass said to the next grass, oh, this one's in trouble. <laughs> and it said, hello. And then the next one did. And they kind of like, I don't know if you've ever been to a Greek Orthodox uh, Easter thing where the one the, the priest lights the, the candle, the next person lights it, and then each person lights two and then four, and then it exponentially takes over and it's like completely lit up in the middle of the dark. Well, mm-hmm. that's what happened with this field of grass. It, it swept from near my chest to my feet to my hair to around me to all the way. The entire field of grass was kind of emoting at me by the end of this. And I have never felt such joy and love in my life. So that connection that that, that field of grass offered me, I wrote this book for that field of grass. Melina Semple Watts is a watershed coordinator for Glen County, California, a lifelong lover of plants in a long-term committed relationship with the Mediterranean climate and floral and faunal ecosystems of California, Melina is also the author of Tree, a book about the life and loves of a California live oak. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Jennifer. After our conversation, Melina reached out to me with these thoughts that I wanted to share with you. She starts off with some history of Sir Hagedish Chandra Bose. Born in the mid-1800s, Sir Bose is the Indian equivalent to Leonardo da Vinci, a polymath and genius physicist whose work on radio waves and electricity is still in use today. He was also a biologist, a botanist, an archaeologist, and an early science fiction writer. He did research to see if plants could communicate electrically and concluded that plants experience pain. His research was denigrated by English and European scientists, convinced that his work reflected Hindu mysticism rather than hard science. Now, a hundred years later, similar research leads to similar conclusions. He was right. When I took Indian history at UCLA, I ran into his work and it gave me the confidence to think that some of my personal feelings about plants might be, eventually, verified by science. In the 80s, he was my beacon, she says. In the 90s, modern science began to catch up with him. Dr. Suzanne Simard's research that led to the theory of a fungal network used by plants to communicate underground via the world wood web. There are now layers and layers of research, Melina writes. In the last 20 years, looking at plant-plant communication via this network, via plant pheromones, which we often experience as scent. And as per Sir Bose's research, they communicate electrically. So the plant-plant communication that occurs in the story of tree is in a mental space where magical realism and science collide. As a writer, I was aiming for an arbomorphic representation of tree, using human language to try to articulate via science, via transcendent personal spiritual experiences of connection with plants, and via my imagination what I believe a tree's experience of life might be. In no way was I interested in humanizing the tree's experience. Rather, I wanted to open us up to the idea of what life feels like from the perspective of a tree. 
I focused on what being rooted means, on how photosynthesis and the transmission of water might feel, on how a tree's communication to plants and trees and mobile beings around it might feel, on how life itself is transformed by a slower perception of time, on the pleasure of growth, on the shock of trying to understand what eating and being eaten feels like, on what the experience of a desire to procreate, to connect, to cherish young, might feel like in a plant. Just as many people may never experience childbirth themselves, if a person is next to a mother giving birth, they can have a profound, horrifying, and utterly joyful, empathetic experience of what birth is. Melina ends with this. I believe that while we cannot actually experience a plant's world, or even an animal's world, if we listen and absorb what is shared with us, we may see truth in other beings' existence if we are open to the possibility. I love that. As you consider this season of February, I encourage you to stay as wide open to possibility as you can, to stay as wide open to deep listening in these winter months, to growing into this long-term loving relationship we are part of with this planet that carries us forth. Now, back to our conversation with Melina Semple-Watts and Tree. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we're speaking with Melina Semple Watts, author of Tree, a narrative of the life of a California live oak tree from its germination by blood to its maturity 250 years later. We're back after a break to hear more. Welcome. I think that as plants people, we 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 all feel this we, whether or not we articulate it to ourselves and or or it comes when someone says something like this and you're like oh that is my story but as you know i've just finished writing this book about 75 women in horticulture right. and i can't tell you how many of them have this same kind of story of a tree who like got them through mm. their their hard part of middle school or mm. through racist isolation mm. or just the the same exact thing this feeling of universal care and it is so deeply gratifying when you feel it but it's also deeply gratifying when we as humans can connect to that sense of connection with other people with other plants and make us know that we have our people yes <laughs> yes so talk about tree because uh, so what year was that melina like that, <laughs> I'm that you would have i'm a little embarrassed to say how long ago it was because i guess it would have been like 2003 that I had the epiphany I was going to write the book. Yeah. And uh, the beginning of the book, the first, not not necessarily the beginning, the first chapter actually, but about half of the book wrote itself like me, yes. like just letting it all come out in two months. It was a spectacularly emotional experience. And then I realized, well, it takes place over 229 years of history. And I'm a history major. I couldn't just randomly talk. So I had to like compulsively read uh, about the, the Spanish colonial period, about the Mexican colonial period, which is slightly different because they had yep. separated from Spain. So it became a different 
thing, mm-hmm. right, um, about early Shumash culture. And then I had to do all the botany research and the science research. So that kind of took over for a couple years. And so then there was a point in about 2008 where I would researched like a crazy person. And I wanted to finish the book. And I had this huge job and these uh, a kid and a newborn baby. And I, I felt this book was my destiny. That sounds really over the top. But I'm sure you all have things in your life that you know that's what you're supposed to do right your life, right? Mm-hmm. So I had at the time, as a watershed coordinator, I was obligated to do a lot of fundraising and a lot of, you know, endeavor to make things happen. And one of my donors was this brilliant old curmudgeon that, you know, had sued half of Malibu, (laughs) right, Um, named Ozzy Silna. And I could say his name now because, bless his heart, he's deceased. I was never allowed to mention who my donor was while he was alive because he didn't want other people coming after him. But Ozzy was my friend, and he helped me as a watershed coordinator with my program on a lot of levels. And I saw him for coffee, and I guess he saw me one time walk into the coffee shop. He says, come sit down. He goes, what's really going on? I said, well, I've got this project that's nipping at my heels day and night, and I don't have time to do it. He goes, how much money would it take for you to take off the time from work and finish your book? And I said, I think $10,000. He goes, that's crazy money. How about six? And I said, thank you. So I wrote fast. <laughs> and, uh, and it changed my life. Because once yeah. you have that first manuscript, then you can, you know, try and, then you can try. Try and finish it. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, I'm sure you have many writers who come in and tell you this. That first manuscript, you think you're done and you're all proud of yourself, right? So it, proud. Tip of the freaking iceberg, part of my French. <laughs> so I went through many, many drafts. And what I found is that people in my life who were experts were not interested in helping me until the last second when they realized, oh, my God, she's actually going to print. And then they weighed in with these, like, awesome, huge, epic changes that I had to make or my life was going to end and the book would be terrible. And they were all right. So I did, like, three or four rewrites in two months, and it was the most exhausting thing I've ever done. I found um, a Shumash professor who prefer- prefers for her name not to be used who sent me back the first third of the book heavily in red. And I took into what she said. She was right, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I had to change the species of grass, the, gra- the grasses, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's that is awesome. It was published in two thousand seventeen. In seventeen, yes. and on Earth Day, one, we aimed for Earth Day. That's so great. And one of the things that really strikes me about this, having having read it, is, you know, you you had the epiphany in two thousand three. You had the experience with the grass as a as a young person, and there has been over these last you know, decade or so, this wonderful kind of communal Mm -hmm. consciousness about this very thing, this a lot of scientific research coming out about the ways in which animals, plants, trees intercommunicate and interdepend on and with each other. Um, The first one, of course, that comes to mind is Peter Wolobin's The Secret Life of Trees and the research coming out of the the Symard lab up in Correct. British Columbia and it's one of those movements and concepts that like make my skin tingle because I just wish it had happened so much sooner but it's happening and it is gaining a lot of credence and acceptability reading overstory recently mm. and just there is a character in that book who is putting forth as a scientist this very concept, and she's laughed out of her own profession for many years because she is taken to be a flake and and not credible. So it's just, it's exciting to see the energy building around this. With that, walk us through some of Tree and, and how it starts and how these different characters and voices came to you, as well as how you 
decided to handle some tricky things such as pronouns mm. and pacing. Mm. Um, these are these are two of the things that I think you 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 take on, and it might be a little confusing for a reader in the beginning, but once you get into it, you you start to understand what it is you're working on. Um, and they make a huge difference in in a person's mindset as they get through the book. Well, one of the things about trees in particular, and I chose tree as the central narrator because tree chose me. They talk about charis- charismatic megafauna in, yeah. in animals. And I think for most people uh, that are not hardcore plant people, trees are the charismatic megaflora, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So everybody everybody goes to see the red ones and comes back and says, oh. So I wanted to capture that emotion and as a, as a point of connection with my readers. And when you study trees, you find out that their, their biological pacings of what they do is much slower. So we have blood, but they have sap. And for sap to go from the bottom of the tree to the tips of the tree and the back is infinitely slower than what we experience. But there is movement in a tree. Mm-hmm. And there's there's certain plants that we're learning about that they can sort of intentionally move. You watch sunflowers track the sun or something like that. So there is... A, a way of existing that's not as far from animals as we think it is, mm-hmm. but the pacing is very slow. So when you reference Dr. Samard and her work with um, the World Wood Web, which mm-hmm. I always have to say slowly so I don't mangle it, she talks about how if a tree is communicating with another tree through this fungal network, then it could take weeks for the message to get from one side to the other and one side to get back. But if a tree is alive for you know 200 years or 600 years or 1,000 years, depending on the species, that's not an unreasonable pacing. Right. So it's almost kind of like a, a Star Trek conceit of like, okay, you want to think like a tree? You have to think uh, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the Japanese art form Buto, mm-hmm. but it's a dance form where, where the slightest movement that a person would ordinarily make takes two to five minutes to happen. But what ends up happening if you sit there and absorb a Buto experience is over two hours, you get put into the pace of the dancers and they cram all this enormous life activities into two hours at a very slow pace, but yet it's everything you've ever wanted to know about humanity, right? right. <laughs> and at the end, you're like completely overwhelmed, you know? It's, it's, it's the most profound art form. So I feel like Buto is a tree's life sped up. Yeah. I wanted to help readers to experience how slow, relative to us, tree's life is. And one of the poignant things to me about the tree is it's, it's, it's a very emotionally available tree, if you will. And so it connects with the grass and it connects with several people over the courses of its life. And it experiences their life as like blistering fast. So, you know, there's a woman who has an 80-year lifespan. And for tree, you know, that's that's a tiny percentage of the tree's life and it has to say goodbye. And that's that. So tree's ability to experience the mortality of others and still continue and to thrive and to love life itself is to me one of the underlying themes of the book. And I didn't realize it when I wrote it, but my elder sister is a Buddhist. And I was exposed to Buddhism and as a history major who studied Japan and India. And she said, you don't realize it, but you've just written the great Buddhist novel. (laughs) Good sister. I said, I don't know about that. But I did get invited to speak to the LA Zen Center. And uh, my premise about the Buddha's enlightenment is that after, you know, he fled his wife and his baby and his kingdom and went looking for enlightenment, went through all these different gurus and, and nothing was working for him. He was desperate to connect to something greater than himself. He said, I'm going to sit in this tree and I'm not going to move till I get this. I believe that his sitting there, that he was having emotional connectivity to the trees and the forest and that many of the greatest lessons of Buddhism that we know about patience and meditation and, and loving kindness for all beings, compassion came from the Bodhi tree. From the Bodhi tree. Yeah. 
As a young person, Melina Semple-Watts loved plants, but as a young adult, she credits them, a field of kind grass specifically, with literally emoting to her in such a way that it saved her in a time of great need. Melina's book, Tree, is a testament to her understanding of and love for plants of all kinds, starting with what she calls the most charismatic megaflora, a California live oak, over its 250-year history. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break to speak more with Melina. Hey, it's Jennifer with a little more Thinking Out Loud. Part of the fun for me in this episode was listening to and following Melina's own pathways of learning in her life, her research into and sharing with botanical and environmental science resources, with spiritual history and communities. So much of our learning in life is self-taught, self-directed, and absorbed throughout our lives. It is As I offered out in last week's episode about fire and the land, lessons offered to us by the world around us, by the land, by libraries, by other people, by references and insights that come to us each and every day and activate our interest, our curiosity, and our expansion. I can see Melina pushing open the door of that beat-up trailer holding the treasures of the Resource Conservation District. If this is a mode of learning in your life that you already enjoy, or if it's one of the elements in your life you'd like to fortify, I think you'll enjoy the coming few weeks of Cultivating Place as we embark on an exploration of some of the ways and means by which gardeners activate their own love of lifelong learning and intellectual growth in community and engagement. We'll visit with a public garden and hear about their winter lecture series, We'll talk to plant nerd groups and public policy advocates. There's always more to learn, my friends. And if you didn't already go explore the history of Sir Bose or the work of the Simard Lab or read Overstory or the hidden life of trees, these late winter months are just the time. Go do it. If you want more Cultivating Place in your life, you can subscribe to our newsletter. It came out just this last week. A view from here is the email update I send out towards the end of each month as a way of more direct connection to you all. It often includes botanical thoughts, information on upcoming events, books or garden reviews, and more. I share more about people, places, and plants I've been loving but haven't been able to feature on the show. If you love the podcast, I think you'll really love what I have to share in the newsletter. Head over to cultivatingplace.com newsletter to sign up. Now, back to our conversation with Melina Semple-Watts and Tree. Melina Semple-Watts, author of Tree, a narrative of the life of a California oak tree from its germination to its maturity 250 years later, is joining us in the studio today. In writing Tree, Melina embraces 
the audacity of being interconnected with the lives of the more than human around us. She lovingly tried to be a tree when she was writing the book. We're back after a break to hear more. Welcome. In case it helps, let me say that. Uh, let me summarize for readers that the the book tree, uh, and Melina has alluded to this, it, it is a sort of an overview of the life and thoughts and and proposed feelings of one oak tree. Or California live California oak. California Sorry to oak. be so... No, yeah. no, because they're very specific and our oaks are all very different. Mm. And it is more or less from the perspective of the tree, Correct. which as I say, can be a little disorienting in the beginning of the book, but then really kind of takes hold as you get it. And then the the narrative goes on kind of side field trips into the lives of some of the people who interact with the tree and overlap in lifespan with the tree and some field trips with other plants in and around the tree, some non-native, some native. The So there is a lot of history that you uh, call on and clearly re- did your research on. And I love the fact that you had readers review the book based on different lenses, specifically mm. the the. Chumash people. And so over the course of the book, you get this great sense of different experiences for the tree, different seasons of not only a year, but also seasons of life for the tree. And the pacing in the beginning is going much more quickly when the tree is perhaps growing, especially relative to itself, much more quickly. And then the tree's sort of thoughts and communications and observations kind of slow as the tree gets bigger and bigger, and it starts to match the the pacing of some of the older uh, elements around tree, uh, including the stone or the stars, and um, and it, it it's a very beautiful narrative, very beautiful narrative. So I'll let you um, continue in terms of how you decided which elements and which parts of history and yeah. Well, I wanted I'm I'm very fascinated with ecological history mm-hmm. and uh, ecological history looks at how different human cultures in different places over the course of time how their actions, activities, and uh, values drive ecosystem change, Mm -hmm. right? So as someone who is sort of deeply emotionally rooted in Southern California, um, I wanted to show the changes in this small valley where the tree lives. I I grew up in Topanga, so that's where it's set. Um, uh, From uh, Shumash Gabilina Tongvo culture to the rise of the Spanish uh, Ranchero culture and how that kind of changed a little bit as it became uh, Mexican culture and then the arrival of the Yankees. And I finally end up in, you know, Hollywood new money. And each of those different cultures does things that that completely transform the yes. place that tree lives and the, the other plants and the other animals that live there. And even the nature of the hydrology itself is radically changed when some some guys in like, you know, the 40s or 50s decide it's fun to put in a dam in the creek so their family can have a swimming pool. Yay! Except that now there's no water for this huge chunk of landscape downstream. I knew I wanted to show the, the, the life of this one individual tree and its friendships and relationships, but I was specifically looking for certain things to happen that would culturally uh, show these 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 
impacts on the landscape. And then the other thing I did is I figured out when was there an earthquake? When was there a fire? Mm -hmm. When were there drought years? When were there wet years? And so I had these long uh, timelines that I had where I was marking all these things so that I knew I wanted tree to express what it felt like from a plant's perspective to have a drought or to live through a fire twice or to live through an earthquake. So I had to layer those in with human culture as they actually occurred and appeared. And some of what you capture, you do so beautifully. It makes some explanation, especially for people who may have either lived in California their whole life or been transplanted to California and not actually know the difference between a native and a non-native. So they'll say, well, eucalyptus have always been here. They've been here my whole <laughs> life. They must be native. Or the mustard that blooms in the spring must be must be native. And you do a lovely job of following that ecological evolution in history when the Spanish colonists come in and they spread seeds as they go in order to find their way back and in order to, for whatever reasons, all there are several different reasons. And you give a wonderful extended ex- explanation over several chapters of what this does to the land and mm-hmm. how some of these invasive, the mm-hmm. um, the side oats and the mustard specifically, how they come up, how they push other things out. Yeah. It's an, an interesting historical overview to invasive species, mm-hmm. um, plant species in our mm-hmm. region. And I think that is really just one example of many that you pull in some interesting ecological information that has had much broader implications across time to now. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things about that that I have to interject as an historian is I was taught when I became a naturalist with the Children's Nature Institute this story of how the natives used big bags of mustard seed and, in effect, had a, a flowery yellow brick road to follow back to the boats. And that has since turned out to probably be apocryphal. But I decided since I was writing a work of fiction on this one issue, I could fudge right. it. <laughs> right, 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 right. But the thing that did happen is that from the feed that they gave their horses yes. and their cattle and their pigs, um, that that is where all these non-native seeds lot, came yeah. from. And the really interesting thing is uh, there's a bunch of research where people go to the earliest um, Spanish buildings that exist across the Southwest, they take the adobe bricks and they take them and they pick them apart and they look at the pollen and the seeds. And what they're finding in the literally the oldest physical bricks we have, it's already like something crazy, like 98% non-native grasses. Wow. So they, they are hypothesizing that the spread happened even before people got off the boats just from birds taking it off the, and that these were so well adapted to our parallel ecosystems mm-hmm. that they just kind of took over. Right. But on a, a similar note, the other thing that happened that's just heartbreaking is when uh, the Spanish came in and, and they were exploring, before they even took over you know, the lands, they had... Uh, herds of cattle and herds of sheep and goats and pigs traveling with them, right? Right. And they were kind of wild. And that was good from the Spanish perspective because it was food on the hoof. What happened with the pigs in particular, Mm. you know where I'm going with this. I do. Is that, uh, you know, the Native American economy, particularly in Southern California, but in many places in California, the backbone of their food economy was acorns in the same way that we would say wheat arises, except it was higher fat and higher protein. It was kind of a perfect food to have as your backbone. 
But the pigs love the acorns, so they cleaned them out. So when you look at the missionization process and how quickly it happened, it's because they were starving to death because of the blasted pigs. Right. You yeah. Know? There were just so, so many, many things like so that. So many things. And um, and you do take this on. You do take on the, the hardship of those realities. And that is uh, that is appreciated and it has something to teach just on that level besides mm-hmm. the broader one of opening our thinking to how plants communicate and mm-hmm. and what they are trying to communicate. So when you were thinking about tree itself and to talk a little bit about what what kinds of communication you really wanted to make sure were in here and how you chose to portray them. Well, the first thing that you mentioned much earlier that we haven't touched yes. on is I used a third pronoun. And at the time I used it, it didn't really exist. And it has since surfaced all over the world as something that transgender people are using. And yeah. it's the same pronoun that I thought I, that I invented when I did it. But now it's become something else. So it's really interesting to have that community read this book and tell me, oh, I love it. Um, but I invented this pronoun E, meaning... Uh, he and she together, not separate. Right. So I guess nowadays people would call that they. But I wanted to have a word that was not it because I feel that when you use it, you're depersonalizing right. and you're saying, de- you know, this living. is a plastic cup. Right. And a tree is the opposite of a plastic cup. Nothing against plastic cups. I mean, there is a lot of against plastic cups. You know what I mean. I digress. But a, a tree has – there are some trees that are male and female species separately. But, I mean, uh, male and female genders that have to – you know, correlate to have offspring, but most plants are uh, male and female within themselves. Right. And so I felt that um, I wanted to celebrate this as sort of an incredibly intense emotional romantic experience that's just different than what we have. Mm -hmm. So if a tree is ready to produce life from other trees, you know, it puts out flower and it receives pollen from other trees. And it's sort of like this massive romantic orgy where other trees are mating with adjacent trees through the wind. So it's it's very sort of like worldwide romance, if you will, when, when plants procreate. And if you use the word it, you're you're taking away their version of life. And I wanted to say it's not a human version. It's not boy meets girl, but it's it's special and precious and different and I want you to try and be in it. I want people to feel like they're a tree when they read tree. Right. So that they can relate to what it's like to never move from one spot. What it's like to see things moving by you and think, whoa, that's weird. That that animal can walk. What is that? You know, like right. I wanted – and I also wanted this sense that life comes and goes <laughs> around you and there you are forever. But how infinitely large that, that valley is for tree. That's the whole world for tree, but it never leaves it. Right. You know? There are some wonderful moments. One of them, um, there is a sentence in there that says something along the lines of sentience is not to be wasted and this broader concept of what it is to be sentient and the um, the idea that uh, all things, because you even apply this to a rock that is in the valley near tree mm-hmm. and that there is some form of communication even if it's not organically living exactly the way we think of that and you 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 do this with the stars as well so very different than a plastic cup but not strictly biologically living the way we think of biologically living even 
Um, and and stone is and and the stars. I think those conversations between tree and these elements are, um, and I can't even say conversation really. It's communication that you portray. Um, it it doesn't just include plants and animals. It includes right. the whole biological ecosystem. The other one that I I love is when tree is uh, apparently trying trying to understand um, one of the humans coming by and why she has such a big middle section. And <laughs> he, he's very concerned that a, a really, really aggressive parasitic wasp has created a gall in her, and he's, he's concerned. And there is this line, so I will say that that was lovely for me to read. Oh, good. There is this line that all of us have to like figure out and be comfortable, not comfortable, give license to of anthropomorphizing. And you do actually at the by by the end of the book, I am completely comfortable with the effort you are making to create this idea of communication that is more than human. And without trying to be anthropomorphizing a, 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 a living being that you clearly have a great deal of admiration for. Well, if you look at Shintoism in Japan, they, oh, yeah. they, they wouldn't think the idea of hanging out with a rock was off kilter no, at all. No, And um, their relationship with trees is intensely intimate and powerful and important, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so many tribal cultures, in fact, everyone that I'm personally aware of, and I'm pretty focused on a lot of this stuff, they all have connections to other species besides people as the basis of what they believe. So to my mind, the tragedy of Western culture is that if you look at the Judeo-Christian Islamic construct, it is often taught as human's relationship with God and God and us and we are it and we're the most important thing and the rest of it is there to serve us. Now, I know there are people working in those theological spaces, all three, who are trying to um, make Eden the centerpiece, right? And so they're trying to open their 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 theological hearts, if you will, and, and show us ways that that can be done. But historically, it's me and mine and us and people. And it's very lonely to think of people first and people only. Yeah. Right? And Which so these, is why the Anthropocene is often referred to as the age of loneliness. It's yes. a disaster, yeah. right? So so these other cultures, they they are interweaving with bio, they're, they're acknowledging that biodiversity is part of what makes us alive, mm-hmm. right? And that you can't have a human being removed from biodiversity and that if we interface with it, it will interface with us. And that's not at all anthropomorphizing. I am not saying mm-hmm. that a horse can look me in the eye and speak English, but I am saying that a horse can look me in the eye and feel something and I can feel it back and we can have a connection and we can mm-hmm. do things. It can tell me things it needs and I can tell it what I wish. And there's a there's a real thing there. And a lot of people have that with pets and it keeps them... From craziness, it keeps them gives them joy when nothing else will. Mm-hmm. But there's also that capacity for us to do that with plants, with trees, with the landscape, with the sky, with with the the sun and the moon and the stars, and 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 all of it. And you know, even the things that we have created, like an airplane or back to the blasted plastic club, there's something in there that's 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 a there there too. And how do we talk about what that is? when we've been schooled our whole lives not to do it. So it takes a lot of audacity. But what I tried to do when I wrote the book is to take my genuine sense that I had interconnected with plants and my perspective of what it would be like 
to, to be green and growing, to never eat, to uh, photosynthesize, to be dependent on water, to be vulnerable to being eaten, to um, wanting to connect and communicate from the language that I felt that they were using. And I just try and I tried to be a tree when I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you would like to add about the book and about your experience and, and what you hope for it with readers or even non-readers in their own interconnecting with the world around them? I see that as a two-part question. Sure. In terms of non-readers and interconnecting with the world, I would say that uh, uh, to quote uh, Reverend Sandy Liddell from Malibu Methodist, where my kids went to preschool, um, loneliness is the great scourge of our time. And, you know, certainly listening is a, a, a human restorative thing we can all do for one another, right? But if you are lonely and you are seeking and not finding, uh, get out of doors. Get out of doors and, and connect with plants and, and all the wonderful creatures that are in our world. And, you know, if you can't go take a walk in the woods, which is always, you know, whether it's the woods or the beach or the desert or the mountains or wherever, that you, or the farm, that you could get out of doors and walk. If you can't take a walk, get a plant and have a living plant in your room, and it will heal you and save you because we are, we are co-created. We are co-evolved, which depending on your perspective, right, to, to be with plants. And yes. by being divorced from that, we're killing ourselves. And by reconnecting to that, we can restore the world in ourselves. So that's what I'll say to the non-readers and the readers alike. And then to people who are readers, um, you know, I will say that since this book came out has been the most magical time of my life apart from having actual, you know, children, which is amazing. Um, because what happens is when I meet with readers, they tell me their plant stories yeah. and they tell me about their trees. And, you know, whether it's a lady who's a Holocaust survivor telling me about the apricot that they brought back from death on the kibbutz after she escaped the Holocaust. I mean, I'll never be able to eat an apricot again without thinking of her, you know. <laughs> so everybody comes to me and tells me their plant stories. And so I realized that um, my, you know, my arbophilia, uh, my florophilia is not unique. It's something that drives us all. And so I invite you to read Tree because if you have inclinations to love plants at all, this is the book that, that you've been waiting for that tells you uh, everything you ever felt is true. It's real. Thank you very much for being a guest today. It's been a pleasure, and (laughs) Tree was a a lovely gift. Melina Semple-Watts is a watershed coordinator, plant lover, and author based in Northern California. In her book, Tree, Melina takes on the voice of a California live oak from the fall and germination of its acorn through its 250-year-or-so maturity. It is a work of wonder, insight, and love. Happy early Valentine's Day from me, from the plants and the trees that sustain you, and from Melina and Tree. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos of Melina Semple-Watts and her book Tree, see this week's show notes at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you to everyone who makes this program possible. Devoted listeners, donors, and supporters 
We couldn't do this without you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.